Welcome. The parish is a church community in Alpharetta, Georgia, practicing the way of Jesus for the sake of others. Talks like these are just one part of how we gather to be deeply reshaped by Jesus. So we invite you to join us any Sunday morning for a full church gathering. You can find more information or contact us by visiting our website at parishanglican.org. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they took they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. The Gospel of the Lord. Thanks, Holly. All right. Well, we are in the Gospel of Mark today, and Mark opens up his Gospel, verse 1, right out of the gate. He opens up with these words that this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And then, having introduced that opening phrase, he jumps in with an immediacy, and with an urgency. He opens out of the starting blocks like a cannon blast and introduces Jesus with a sky-splitting force. Jesus arrives on the scene. He hears the voice that calls him the Beloved. He is immediately driven out into the wildernesses of temptation to battle with Satan and his minions. He leaves that scene and calls his disciples. He announces the kingdom of God that is at hand. He demonstrates the power of that kingdom through healings. He goes into the synagogue and teaches. Uh, not only does he teach, he teaches as one with so much authority that the crowd is aghast. They can't believe it. And everything that I just mentioned happens in the first 28 verses of the book of Mark. And so Mark just shoots out of the starting line and it has been a long few days, a big few days for Jesus. And so that's where we find ourselves in the passage this morning. Jesus has just finished teaching in the synagogue. He teaches with authority. And now finally having finished his work there, he is ready to take a break. And so he heads to the home of his new friend, Peter, and uh, he's going to go, you know, do whatever it was they did in that day after church, maybe prop up his feet on the table, watch the equivalent of the Super Bowl or whatever it is they did. And uh, but when he arrives ready for some much deserved rest, he finds Peter's mother-in-law and she is sick. She is seriously sick. And so where everyone else in the house is eating, is resting, is talking, she is alone, isolated in a room by herself, laying down. And the laying down speaks to the serious nature of how sick she was. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, one of the versions of this same story, she doesn't just have a fever. Peter's mother-in-law has a mega fever, a serious high, high fever. Now, this is one of the few stories we know about in Scripture that speaks to any of the disciples' families. We don't know much about the disciples' families. We don't know how many of them were married or if they had children. But here we get this story, and it shows up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and all of the Synoptic Gospels. And what we learn from this story, and also from other places in Scripture, is Peter was married. 
But beyond that, we know almost nothing about his wife. There is some church lore, some tradition around Peter's wife, but we know nothing in the scriptures themselves about her. All we know is that in all three versions of this story, while her mother-in-law, or while her mother is perhaps deathly ill, she's not there. She's not there. Where is she? And why is the mother-in-law staying in Peter's house? And for that matter, where is Peter's father-in-law? We don't know the answers to any of these questions, but what we know for sure is that at perhaps her greatest time of need where she is seriously sick, Peter's mother-in-law is lying alone in bed and her daughter is not there and her husband is not there. And so if we look beneath the surface of what we might otherwise breeze past, we find that in the layers and the subtext of this story is a sense of loss. The loss of not having loved ones near in a time of pain, in a time of need. The loss of not being able to be at the party, so to speak, confined to a room while there is this sense of life happening just outside your reach. And in a very real sense, there is an impending sense, a foreboding sense in the text that there is the loss of health and perhaps even the loss of life in this text. And so part one of our story today is loss. But then Jesus comes to her. He comes to her, he takes her by the hand, and he lifts her up. He offers no words to her, but in the absence of words, what he does offer is presence because sometimes the the most uh, important thing to do is to hold silence and hold someone's hand. And so he raises her up. And in the time and day that Jesus is in, there is some scandal here that we might not pick up on reading it with modern eyes. But Jesus is a man. He goes into a woman's room. He goes into the sick bed and he touches her. And he does this on the Sabbath day. So there's like multiple levels of scandal happening. This is not what you do, because in that day, the healthy do not go near the sick. The men do not go near the women. There's a sense in that day of a lower class of women. And certainly you don't do these things on the Sabbath, but Jesus is upending the social norms in order to draw near to the woman's need. And so I want to draw that out because there's something here that I think is important, which is that when Jesus heals someone in the Gospels, there is often two things happening simultaneously. There is both an individual healing and there is a broader social healing and a social wellness that Jesus is offering to the broader culture. So something deeply individual and personal is happening in the healing for uh, for Peter's mother-in-law, but Jesus is also speaking at a broader, more symbolic level. He's saying, I have come so that all might be included, and he upends the social norms of the day in order to bring healing to Peter's mother-in-law. Just a few verses before this, in a church full of healthy religious people, Jesus goes and finds the one man oppressed by demons, oppressed by evil, and says, you too. 
you're included too. It's not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. In just a few chapters after this, he's gonna go find the woman who has been a social outcast for 12 years because of her bleeding issue, and he will bring a touch of healing to her too. And so what Jesus is doing is not only healing the individual, but he is coming to those who have been excluded, those who have been oppressed at the broader level, and he drives out the feverish, in the person, and he drives out the sickness in the society at the same time. That dual level healing is something that marks the kingdom of God. So Jesus comes to her, and he lifts her up. He agyros her in the Greek. And it's the same word that we get in Mark 16, 6, where uh, the disciples go to visit Jesus after he has been crucified. And the angel says, he is not here. He is a guy road. He is risen. And so there's almost a foreshadowing of coming back to life in the text today. Jesus, in some sort of meaningful way, resurrects Peter's mother-in-law. And he comes to show that on this field that has been dominated by illness, by death, by evil, he has come with part two of our story today, which is life. In the midst of a world marked by loss, Jesus brings life. And back to life again. Peter's mother-in-law immediately gets up, gets out of bed, and she begins to serve them, it says in the text. And when we hear that, there, there may be a bit of a sense there that is off-putting. It sort of smacks of this uh, worldview in which the, the woman gets out of bed, she's finally able to stand up on her own two feet again, and her first task is to go serve the men? <laughs> right? So there's this sense of like, uh, you can read this with a real patriarchal way of looking at it, but I think if we dig a little deeper, we actually find something far more rich and meaningful is happening here in the story because she is not serving them milk and cookies. She is serving them uh, in the Greek, the word that she gets up and she begins to serve them. She is diakoneoing them. Diakoneoing, it's where we get the word diaconate. It's where we get the word deacon. Earlier this fall, I was ordained into the diaconate before I was ordained into the priesthood. It is the ordination into a ministry of service. And so the first deacon in the church of Jesus Christ is Peter's mother-in-law. It's like he raises her up and she's the first one who gets what this whole thing is all about. That the radical announcement of the kingdom is that God has come not to, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life away for the many. She gets a sense, a glimpse, a, a scent of the towel and basin essence of what this kingdom is all about, and she gets to work serving as a way of pronouncing the kingdom. Right? One of the questions that Mark deals with over and over in his gospel is this rhetorical question that goes like this, like, do you get it? Do you see what's happening here in the story? Of course, he's got the spoiler alert in verse 1 of the entire book. He says Jesus is the Son of God. But then throughout the gospel, no one seems to get it. In fact, the only ones who recognize Jesus for who he is up to this point are the demons and Peter's mother-in-law. 
She's the only one who seems to see it. It's going to be years before Peter seems to get this for himself. He's right now wanting to argue about who gets to sit at Jesus' right hand, who's the greatest, but Peter's mother-in-law sees for herself that on the other side of loss and life comes part three, which is resurrected purpose. And so... Uh, she is not only having Jesus lay hands on her to heal her. There is an element where beyond just a healing story, this is an ordination story. Jesus raises her up into a newness of vocation, into a fresh work. On the other side of the loss comes some meaningful new task. Jesus has drawn near to me in my pain, and now I am sent out with a fresh sense of purpose to draw near to others in their pain. Loss, life, and resurrected purpose. The story of Peter's mother-in-law is important. It matters for us because right now we are all her. We are feverish as a society. We are isolated. We are feeling unable to rise. We are deeply in need and we can't force parts two and three of the pattern, right? Like loss and resurrected purpose are above our pay grade. So the question comes to you and I today, what are we going to do with part one? What are we going to do with our response to the loss, to the grief, to the limitations, to the change? Our life is significantly disrupted right now. But this should not surprise us because Christ is central and central to Christ is death and rising, a pattern of suffering, death and rising into a fresh, meaningful ministry. And so loss is going to come. We're going to face many quote-unquote deaths in this life. And to quote Brene Brown, we often think that church or faith is the epidural that makes the pain go away, but actually church and faith is the midwife that says, keep pushing, this is supposed to hurt. And it feels like a time of darkness, it feels like a time of transition, but we are in the womb of something new that can be brought to life. And so I want to normalize for us today, friends, that loss is an ordinary way that we grow in Christ. It is not the invasion to our otherwise easy lives that we just want to get rid of as quickly as possible. Instead, it is a normal way that we are invited into growing in Christ-likeness because God comes to us through the loss, through the absence, through the darkness. And if we look around right now, our entire world is in this collective dark night of the soul where we don't quite know what's going on and the things we used to be able to do, we can't do. And there is a sense of helplessness and isolation and we, the church, have the message to say it's supposed to hurt, but something new can be born here. And so there's this desperate need in our world for transformed guides for people who can say through their lived experience with a fresh inner authority, I know what God can do through pain. And the only way we get there is by sitting with Jesus in the pain that he does not punitively cause, but does redemptively come to us through. And sitting there with him 
allowing it to become not a terminal death, but a transformative experience that invites us into newness of life and resurrected purpose. If we miss that, we will remain confused and stuck with no word of life to offer the broader culture around us. But if we can see God coming to us, slipping in amidst the loss, we are invited into something new. And so, Today, I'm going to invite you to freshly envision how this painful season that we're all in can become a place of encounter, a place where you meet Jesus, a place where uh, you not put the happy face, not gloss over what you are grieving and limited and losing right now, but instead that naming that clearly actually allows you to then see Jesus' bedside coming to you, to lift you up, to resurrect you, and to ordain you into a new purpose. We've put a worksheet together to help you go through that, and I want to encourage you to take some time. I know life is full, but I want to encourage you to take some time this week, 15, 20 minutes. And in fact, those of you who may be less likely to notice and name your losses, there might be an inverse relationship here where those of you uh, like me who might be less inclined to do that all the more need to create intentional space to do it. And so on the website, at the top of the gather page, there is a button that says uh, to download the Lost Life and Resurrected Purpose Worksheet. And it gives you an opportunity to name and chart your losses in this season in a variety of categories and to then begin to wrestle with what treasures God may have for you in the difficulty, in the darkness, what unhealthy attachments he might be stripping away. And then what invitation might he have for you to some sort of new purpose, some sort of fresh posture, some re uh, refreshed, renewed perspective. It may just be that you all of a sudden just show up differently within your own home or your own workplace. There may be something the Holy Spirit is just repeatedly whispering and beckoning you into on the other side of all that you've gone through in this season. But the first step is to notice and name our losses so that then we can see Jesus raising us up through them. I'll end today with this quote that Holly shared with me literally about an hour ago. And it comes from Bob Goff, but I thought that it just perfectly encapsulated what we're talking about here today. And he says this, he says, embrace uncertainty. Some of the most beautiful chapters in our lives won't have a title until much later. So Jesus, we come to you right now in this untitled chapter of our lives. And we recognize that we don't fully understand what you're doing. This is a time where the best we can do is wait with you in the confusing in-between. But I wonder how you may title even the difficulty, even the genuine heart-wrenching grief, even the losses and limitations of this season, how may you be authoring redemption? Help us not to just breeze through this period of our lives, but to really pin that down, to do the hard work, to sit in silence, to journal, to pray, that you might actually change us, even through this difficulty. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.